Blog Talk Radio. Now let's join Holly Steffi and Red Velvet Media as we explore the inspirational worlds of music, media, and more. way into today's show. Welcome to uh, Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio, and I have a really special guest um, with me today, Max Hawthorne. He'll be here talking about his newest book, Cronus Rising, and we're going to be discussing some really interesting subjects besides just the book, some really interesting things that I think a lot of people need to be aware of, and um, not only is this book just really it get it gets you. You just I I started I I went to reread it. I've already read the book and I started rereading it this morning. Certain parts of it. It was just so interesting. I just kept you know the descriptions and everything in the book is really cool. I'm gonna also post the websites and um, Max is also on Facebook and all that. If you'd like to call in, we will be taking um, live callers. The number is three four seven. Six seven seven one zero three six. And if you'd like to go into the chat room, the chat room is open. You just need to create an account with Red Velvet Media. And um, let's see, what else? It'll be on iTunes afterwards and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio On Demand. And with that, um, I am going to bring Max into the um, studio because he's just got so much information to share with us. Welcome, Welcome to the show, Max. <laughs> Thank you, Holly. Thank you for having me there back. It's great are. to be here. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, this is the second time I've had Max on, and um, we are going to be doing um, a couple shows with him because there's some really interesting things that have been um, coming about, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit later as we get into um, talking a little bit more about the book and what's transpiring with the book and also, some of the really cool things that Max has done. I'm going to out you on it, Max. And everything. <laughs> it wouldn't be the done. first time I've been out. No, <laughs> he's done really cool stuff. And, you know, this is just something that I think everybody needs to know because it's always really good to know what's going on with, with the author behind um, the book. So, um, first of all, let's talk about your book, Cronus Rising. Um, you've gotten some really amazing reviews on this book. And for everybody listening, um, Cronus Rising is on Facebook. You can go there. Um, Max is on there too, but um, we'd rather you go to the website for the book itself because it really helps to paint a um, a picture of what it's all about. And um, why don't you tell our listeners, while I'm getting the website up, um, a little bit about what Cronus Rising is all about, and then we will um, talk a little bit more about 
what's going on with it and what you're working on right now. Oh, sure. Thanks, Holly. Well, Cronus yeah. Rising is basically a novel of marine terror mm-hmm. in the tradition <laughs> of such bo- books that. as Jaws and Beast by the late, great Peter Benchley. Uh, uh-huh. It's also technically a work of paleofiction because it's centered around a prehistoric predator that has survived to the present, and the story focuses on the impact it has on a quiet coastal community once this creature sets up shop, and of course the actions of the principal characters that are forced to try and deal with such a large and dangerous animal. Mm-hmm. You know what I really what what part I got into this morning and was really it just really it was like it paints such a picture. You have a really unique style of writing, and. Um, this book is, let's see, what I really love about this book, not only is it just so graphic, um, it also has this really cool glossary in the back of nautical and marine terms for people that may not be aware of what a beam is and a berth and a bow and a bridge. Obviously, I'm going <laughs> alphabetically. But um, it was really neat because, you know, as I was reading the book, I was like, wow, now I know what that means. And um I got into the part this morning. It was really, really kind of graphic about the part where they are pulling up where where the monster has actually been hooked onto their um, little pulleys that they, the pulleys that they have on the boat, and how it's pulled parts of the boat out and 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 just yanked people and and then graphically talking about the people that have part of the hook in them and. The blood spurting everywhere and stuff like that. I thought it was really is, cool. Is this the attack on the uh, on the tuna boat yeah. that you're talking about? Yeah. Ah, the Sayonara. Yeah, that was yeah. actually, believe it or not, based on a boat I used to fish off of out of Montauk, New York. The captain, really? uh, yeah, an old is captain that of mine. Happened to you? No, I didn't have any pliosaur come up and try and eat me or anything like that. But, it, you know, when you've done a lot of firsthand experience, like you're talking mm-hmm. about how graphically I write, et cetera, it really helps if you've had a lot of life experiences that you can relate to when you're describing scenes for your readers. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, whether it's fishing or shooting or fist fighting or anything like that, you know, if you've actually had some experience in these matters, it's, you, you don't have to fake it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And whether it's fortunately or unfortunately, I've had a lot of ex- life experiences that have loaned themselves towards creating a, a graphically described novel like that, you know, which is great. I'm very happy with the feedback I've gotten from reviewers. No, you've gotten some amazing reviews, and that segues me into let's talk about what you have done. <laughs> I know that you've done a lot of really great stuff, and you've um, really experienced and seen some of the things that we only – dream that we could uh, that we could experience and again um you know you are not shy about talking about them and you've done a lot of really cool things that only like i said we could wish and dream that we could go through um well i think a man of my advanced years you know you tend to you know spread yourself around a little bit you know what I'm uh, yeah <clears throat> sorry a little yeah. gabby hayes coming out there or something i don't know i hear but, uh, you well, so what, what are we discussing? First. Hmm? Let's talk about you. I know I had you on originally for your first book, or one of your books, one of your other books, uh, Jim Rat, which was really interesting, where you worked um, in the healthcare industry mm-hmm. with meaning Health the, um, yeah, like the working out and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and you really blew the top over what was really going on there. That was a really interesting interview, um, but 
besides that, you've been involved. You you, you are the go-to guy. And as you were telling me um, when we've chatted off and on about some of the people that are calling you about fossils they're finding and, and creatures that are washing up on the shores at beaches and stuff, and they really have never seen anything like that, and you're actually um, asked to be part of that and um, give your opinion on that. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, how did that come well, about? I, I... It seems like if you, every time you go online or turn on the news yeah. or, or on social media, there's constantly things going on in the oceans. Uh, you know, you've got beachings, mass beachings of cetaceans, mm-hmm. different types of whales, even entire pods of killer whales, which are the dominant predators on this planet, mind you, are washing ashore and dying. Uh, you've got mm-hmm. fish showing up in places that they should not be. I mean, 20 years ago, if you fished the Hudson Canyon, encountering a blue marlin there would have been insane. Now they're everywhere. So the oceans, the currents, the climate, the world's climate, everything is changing. And it seems like you start to wonder when the, these big fish move, if other creatures that eat them, obviously, are going to be following their food source, does that bring them into closer proximity to us? You know, mm-hmm. Like last month, I think it was actually in mid-July, there was reports out of Rhode Island where they were having the livers from basking sharks. And basking sharks are harmless fish, but they get huge, up to 40 feet. And their livers from like two or three different basking sharks were washing up on shore. Now, why is this happening? I mean, wow. if a boat hits a, a 30-foot shark and kills it with a propeller, it doesn't surgically remove its liver. Mm-hmm. You know, if killer whales, which obviously are known to kill and eat even great whites, took out a basking shark, for example, the liver would be the first thing they would eat because it's a delicacy for them. So mm-hmm. it's really strange when you have large creatures like this being, you know, killed, I guess, or something. Something is killing them, and pieces of them washing ashore, et cetera. You've got to wonder what's doing it. You know, what are these changes in the oceans coming from? Big sharks are being eaten. Great whites are being eaten in the news, you know, that came out recently. There's a lot of strange stuff going on in the oceans, and you have to wonder, is the climate change causing things that normally would be out more in the deeper portions of the oceans and away from us, are they coming closer to shore, and what are we going to be seeing soon? Mm-hmm. It's like a scene from I, my book. That's so interesting. Yeah, talk, let's talk about that. I want to hear about that. Well, I mean, Cronus Rising is a work of fiction, Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. The idea being that a pliosaur, these apex marine predators from the Jurassic and Rotaceous, that if one of them or more of them was to survive to the present and suddenly be unleashed on the world's ocean, what kind of impact would it have on the ecosystems? Uh, You know, what would happen to the people, to boating, to surfing, everything like that. And if you take some extremely large, powerful, fast-moving, and dangerous animal like that that's used to being the top predator in its domain, and you release it into oceans that are depleted of sharks, I mean, let's face facts, with all the shark finning going on, there's very few sharks left. You know, you have very few whales left. What is going to keep an alpha predator like that in check? So that was part of the, the... nuance behind the story of Cronus Rising. And with everything that you see happening in the news these days, with whales being attacked or beached, etc., you know, people are, like, I've had reviewers actually comment, they're saying, uh, I'm starting to wonder if Cronus Rising is not as much a work of fiction as a, a survival guide or something, scarily enough. 
Yeah, no, I mean, but the thing is, too, what inspired you to write this book? That's what I, where did the inspiration come from? Well, originally, I wrote Cronus Rising. It's got to be about 10 years ago, to be honest. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was, it was my first goal in terms of a, a novel. It was going to be book one in a series, and it is now in, in its own series, actually. But I ended up putting the book on hold for a long time. It only came out a couple of months ago. Finally, but the inspiration behind it comes from a lot of different things. I mean, my dad. Uh, some people have known this from past interviews I've done. My dad is a huge what they call a rock hound. Uh, he mm-hmm. collects fossils, you know, prehistoric uh, bones and ammonites and trilobites and dinosaur teeth, etc. And as a child, I grew up surrounded by this, so you couldn't help mm-hmm. but be influenced by it. You know, I have this bizarre memory of being like six or seven years old, and the piano that we had in our living room at one point had a tarp on top of it. And when I went to peek, my dad got a little upset because he had the partial skeleton of an adolescent woolly mammoth stashed on top of the piano. <laughs> Most mm-hmm. people don't have that in their house. So yeah, no. obviously, you know, I had a lot of influence like that going to museums as a kid and obviously growing older I kept a lot of different exotic pets you know originally I was going to go to veterinary school and so if you put all this together it gives you a passion for prehistoric life to begin with and then of course I became quite the fisherman and being on the ocean and dealing with marine life obviously was something that was a major hobby of mine as well so it kind of makes sense if you put that all together for me to drift into writing books marine terror novels paleo fiction novels where you have you know a lot of action going on in the water but where you're dealing with a one or more large species of prehistoric marine life yeah and you know I think now when you were living at home and you were with your dad, did you and your father share a lot of tales when you were younger growing up? Well, my dad used to tell me stories of some of his adventures out west when he was a prospector, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. But uh, we didn't, you know, I didn't have stories like he had or anything like that. I just, you know, knew he had a passion for these these animals and these creatures, and I read up a lot of I read a lot of stuff about them. And I used to watch the same TV shows and series as my dad, which was mostly Star Trek, if memory serves. But uh, oh, how funny! Yeah, he was he was a huge Star Trek nut. But uh, you know, you come into your own eventually. And mm-hmm. uh, as I grew older and got into high school and college, fishing became a major passion of mine. And I have, gosh, been, uh, I must have fished a thousand days on the water probably by now. But, you know, that if you can write about something that you have a passion for, then mm-hmm. I think that really loans itself towards creating the most plausible, the most believable type of work of fiction. Sure, it comes through because you've actually experienced it and it's something that's really a big passion of yours. Uh, Fishing-wise, can you um, share any of your personal experiences with your fishing that maybe um, some of our listeners might be interested in? And again, this is Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio, and my guest today is Max Hawthorne, and we're talking with him about his newest book, Cronus Rising. And if you'd like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036. And if you'd like to go into the chat room, create an account, and um, the website's up, and it's Kronos, K-R-O-N-O-S, rising.com. 
What's really cool on there is there's a home about Max Media. There's even a photo gallery. You can submit art. I want to talk about that a little bit later, about the art that you're asking people to submit and stuff. But getting back to your fishing, when you were sure. fishing and um, well, stuff like that, do you have any yeah, really I, I cool think story like, you want to share with us? Yeah. Sure. The like the the scene you spoke about in the in the book where a yeah. uh, charter boat is out and the the uh, captain and his nephew are fishing for a giant tuna, and over the course of that, they're they've almost got this fish that's going to make their season more or less, mm-hmm. uh, almost the boat, and all of a sudden it gets taken by something. Uh, the mm-hmm. the rod bends almost to the water. The boat, the actual stern of the boat dips down. Lion starts screaming off like there's a nuclear submarine on the end. The rod starts to self-destruct. The captain almost gets pulled out of the seat over the side, etc. It's a very exciting scene. Of course, it has a sad ending, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to spoil for people about what happens to the old man and his nephew. But you know, when you're writing a scene like that, for example, I, I would relate that to some of the stuff that I've done because you have to be able to appreciate the sheer power of some of the type of fish that are out there. And one of my favorite or perhaps least favorite experiences fishing would be a couple years ago, I was fishing out of Port Charlotte. It's, that's down by Boca Grande in Florida. Mm-hmm. And my captain and I were out there, and we were catching a giant grouper. They call them Goliath grouper now. And I had already caught what was at that point the biggest fish of my life, which was a a fish that was almost seven feet long and pushing 500 pounds. And wow. that was an intense struggle. But right after that, there was a deep hole that the captain wanted to try, and we put a huge chunk of bait down there. And mm. I hooked another, which must have been another giant grouper. And this fish made the previous fish feel like uh, just a yellow perch on the line or something. It slammed me sideways. I smashed into the polling platform. I nearly got pulled over the side. You heard this cracking sound as this unlimited class fishing rod snapped in half. And then the first 100 feet of line, because of all the pilings there, you you don't want to get cut off, but the first 100 feet of line was actually steel cable, which has a breaking strength of over 500 pounds. This, you hear this screeching sound as this fish pulls all that line off the spool, followed by 400-pound test mono. 400-pound test mono takes well over 400 pounds of pressure to break, and it snapped the 400-pound test mono like it was sewing thread. And then as the fish took off, you know, when a fish really gets moving, it'll leave like a swirl behind sometimes that might come to the surface. The water just like bubbles up, and this swirl, the size of a large hippopotamus, I'm talking over 13 feet across. Are you serious? Yeah, just, and the captain, I stared at, he just goes, well, I don't know what that was. Uh, <laughs> and you're standing wow. there, like, you know, with this adrenaline rush and this broken rod, and you realize you just lost the biggest fish of all time, at least for me. You know, so mm-hmm. when you've had experiences like this, when you're writing a scene in Cronus Rising where the guides, you know, the roller guides on this giant rod are breaking apart and the captain is nearly pulled over the side and his nephew has to hold on to him, bear hug him to the fighting chair to keep him from getting ripped over the side and into the water, you know, you're able to describe a scene like that that much better when you've had some of the adventures. Sure, when you've actually personally you know, experienced yeah. it, yeah. I thought it was really interesting where I was reading about the part where you could hear the the side cracking till it came down to the metal of the ship actually and 
And it just was really, really interesting. And then I kept reading, and I remember that part, and I just kept going back to it. And um, it was, like, very, it was very interesting. And um, I, I found... Is this the scene where, where they, they bait the monster on the, on the uh-huh. ship? The mercenaries. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, and, yeah. and the with the anchor rope and everything. Yeah. And the side of beef. Yeah. Ah. Yep. Yeah. That was that was a fun scene to write. People seem to really enjoy I bet. that. Well, when you want to, when you have an apex you predator, your your How monster makes its main appearance. Like, did you just? Hmm? Did you just get? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting That's you. Okay. Did you get down? Did you like sit down and did it just flow out of you, or was it something that you had time to take? Um, you know, for yourself, or was it something that you just really, it just flowed right out of you and you were able to write? Well, in terms of writing the actual story, I, I plan my scenes out ahead of time. You know, I map uh-huh. them out, sort of like the, a skeleton that's waiting for the meat to be put on the bone, so to speak. So I know where I'm going with, the, you know, a scene or a chapter or something. But I did about three months of hardcore research before I started writing Cronus Rising to begin with. And I had to research everything from uh, prehistoric marine reptiles, anatomy, uh, locomotion, jaw structure, how their eyes worked. I mean, I I read a lot of books on that. I had to read up on submarines and sonar and meteor trajectories to do the, you know, the flashback scenes of the Cretaceous, everything and anything. I mean, I had a lot of personal knowledge to begin with, but I spent months and months, you know, you want to create the most realistic story possible. And, I mean, frankly, as they say, the devil is always in the details. And no matter how great of a writer you are, you're never going to get everything right. You know, sooner or later, you're going to make a mistake. And believe me, there's going to be some reader out there who is going to really enjoy pointing it out to you. <laughs> well, I know, no, no, I can, I can only imagine, you know, and uh, that's why... I think it's really important that you share your own personal experiences. And, you know, these are all real stuff. And the book probably was really an easy read for you, or easy for you to do. Well, not so easy, but just more it flowed out of you because you had those personal experiences. Um, what are you currently working on um, to promote the book, um, Cronus Rising? Um, I want to talk a little bit about the submitting art section you have on your mm-hmm. website and stuff like that um well first off i do a lot of stuff on social media i'm very active as uh-huh. you know on facebook not so much on mm-hmm. twitter uh but i have a, a pretty extensive following on facebook and i do regular posts for the readers and we do contests of uh, you know assorted varieties on there as well with different giveaways and everything um i just completed a terrific interview for prehistoric times magazine that's going to be coming out in their next month's issue as well and awesome. in terms of, oh yeah the mike fredericks from prehistoric times he rocks this one's for you brother but um, the, uh, in terms of, the, I guess, the artwork, that's the Paleo Gallery that's going on on the Cronus Rising site. And what mm-hmm. I'm doing is I, I like to feature artwork, related artwork, I should say, you know, marine life especially, uh, on the Cronus Rising site. And I'm going to be uh, featuring new artists, you know, established artists on the site, different types of uh, artwork that they're you know, obviously 
able to submit to me and to the site, and they'll be on there, and it gives them a chance to an additional, I guess you'd say, avenue to showcase their work where a lot of people will see it and get to appreciate all the talented paleo artists that we have out there. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's, uh, let me think, um, Bob Nichols is on there as a few pieces. And by the way, Bob is going to be painting uh, the cover art for Kraken, book two in the Cronus Rising series. Uh, oh, John really? Civic has a few, yeah, oh, he's awesome. John Civic, another great artist, has a few pieces on there. Yeah, if anybody gets a chance, when you go to CronusRising.com, you just click on Paleo Gallery, and you can see what's currently on there. There's some construction going on. but And then over the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a lot of new stuff appearing on the gallery. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you mentioned also that you are going to be doing um, uh, follow-up books. There are two follow-up books to this, right? There's actually, well, there's going to be two books in the series, and then there is a prequel that is scheduled as well, after which I'll be drifting into probably you know, the same genre, but you know, a new uh, universe, so to speak, new characters, creatures, etc. But yeah, the second book is called Kraken, and that's already uh, in the construction stage, shall we say, and is slated for a late summer slash early fall release next year. Uh, that is probably going to be at least as big as Cronus Rising. Uh, Cronus Rising is a pretty big book. It's about 195,000 words, and Kraken will be of a similar uh, stature, so to speak. And then the third book, obviously, will be following on its heels. Yeah, now you were talking also about possibly doing a movie with this, right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm up to my eyeballs in screenplay right now. In fact, I was working on it a little while ago. But uh, the screenplay I'm ho- should be finished shortly, actually. I just got to polish it up a little bit, and then we'll see where we go with that. Well, wow, that's that's so cool. I think that's going to be so exciting if you come out with the book, and then well, a lot of, um, you know the, the the books to follow, uh-huh. and then the screenplay with that. I mean, that's a lot of readers have be... asked about that. Believe it or not, yeah. like if you go on on Facebook, you know you'll see mm-hmm. any time there's like any kind of prolonged post or, or anything like that. A lot of readers have been asking, you know, when's the movie coming out? Is the movie coming out? You've got to have a movie on this. I would so love to see this as a film. You know, besides the oh, usual requests from. Yeah, the, I think the book loans itself to being on the big screen because it's a very dramatic novel. It has a lot of uh, roller coaster action scenes. It has a lot of suspense, a lot of drama, a lot of uh, angst between the characters, mm-hmm. you know, some great conflicts between the characters, not just the creature. And it, it kind of lends itself to being on the big screen. It, it really, it's hard to, you know, get a book and say, well, you know, this is great, would be great as a movie, because usually there's so many changes made along the way. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. this case, I think Cronus Rising can stay fairly true to itself. And it has sort of, I mean, I've taken some artistic liberties with the screenplay. You know, you only have two hours to tell a story that normally would take people 12 hours to read or something like that. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I try and stay as, as true to the original mark as possible. That's the important part, and I think that you do that. You're very authentic with that, and I think with the knowledge and stuff that you have and all the things that you're experiencing um, and are have experienced have been able to bring that to the readers and to the people that are really interested in it. I would like to take a really quick short break, and we're going to come back. And, again, if you'd like to call in, 347 347- Six seven seven one zero three six, and the chat room is open, and we'll be back in like uh, less than a minute. So hold on.
stay tuned for more from Holly Steffi and Red Velvet Media. Super Soul Sunday premiere event from beautiful Switzerland. 65 million books and counting. The alchemist author, Paulo Coelho. Can I tell you something very personal? With a conversation that will feed your soul. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Paulo's path will help you discover what really matters. Super Soul Sunday. All new Sunday, 11 a.m. 10 Central, followed by Health Desk. Only here. And welcome back. We're happy to be able to um, have the OWN Network be part of this. And uh, I think check out the new lineup um, for Super Soul Sunday this uh, Sunday. I've read The Alchemist. Have you read The Alchemist, Max? The Alchemist? I think I've visited a few over the course of my assorted surgeries. Uh, Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) It's um it's a really cool book and um it really there's a there's a follow up with that so it's kind of cool but yeah it's it's um it's something that I just think that we all need to read that book at one point or another just like we all need to read your book so getting back to your book and the things that you're working on and you and I talked recently about um a fo- some fossils and stuff that you were asked to give your opinion on um tell, you know it was really fascinating what you explained to me a little bit about how the sand could be a different age and the fossil could be newer or older um could you explain oh, a little bit more about the, that yeah what You're talking about, about that? yeah, reworked, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's been a lot of, you know, conjecture as to whether uh, certain marine reptiles, for example, like plesiosaurs, uh, may have actually survived past the Yucatan impact, the Cretaceous extinction. Uh, and some fossils of plesiosaurs, of which the creature from my uh, book is is a type of, although most of them are smaller, but uh, mm-hmm. occasionally some plesiosaur fossils have been found in sediment that would indicate that they were significantly younger than 65 million years, maybe as recent as the Cenozoic. And these fossils, though, have been considered by paleontologists typically to be what they call reworked fossils, meaning that actions of anything from, uh, let's say, an earthquake shifting of uh, the soil to uh, I don't know, maybe a farmer's plow might have moved the fossil from its original sediment into a younger strata and giving a false impression that it's a lot younger than it is. Uh, people like cryptozoologists, of course, who uh, are on the hunt constantly to see if there are extinct animals or unknown animals out there, of course, there's obviously some conflict between some of them and paleontologists as to whether or not they really are reworked fossils or if these plesiosaurs are actually uh, in the fossil record much more recently than the Cretaceous extinction. That's 65 yeah, so million years ago when an asteroid, you know, six or seven miles across, slammed into the, you know, the Yucatan, Mexico region and left a gigantic crater uh-huh. and you know, world uh, Armageddon, basically, and wiped out the dinosaurs and everything that weighed, you know, more than 50 pounds, basically became extinct, et cetera. What do you think about what they're finding now in the um, Grand Canyon, all the different things, all the fossils and stuff that they've 
never found before. Have you been reading about that? No, I haven't. I have so much on my plate. People, you know, (laughs) some of my colleagues send me articles and PDF files all the time about different things. Uh And I just have, I, I, I feel bad because I have no time you know, to read a lot of this stuff or anything. Um, I have, like, subscriptions of three fishing magazines, and they're all piled uh-huh. in my desk drawer. Uh-huh. I haven't opened and read one of them, you know, in a year or something like that. I, I just, mm. you know, you can't be everywhere and be everything to all people, et cetera. But, I, you know, I, I, I mean, it sounds exciting, but I have no knowledge whatsoever about anything going on in the Grand Canyon. No, I totally get that. What um what do you do when you have free time um personally I mean besides spending time with your family and stuff what do you do for you for your time um to just wind when up? I have free you always time kind of find yourself thinking I, I, and mm-hmm. <laughs> what you I, I kind of sit there for a second I say mm-hmm. oh my god I've got a free twenty minutes <laughs> you know and then I might jump on you know the uh, video recorder and, and try and catch up on a show or something like that, let my brain veg oh, wow. a little bit. You know, I used to do, uh, you know, obviously take the boat out uh, constantly, but now I've gotten so busy that it's something that you actually have to schedule, you like know, to take the family out or anything like that. Yeah, it really, mm-hmm. I just, I, I really, between family obligations, obviously, and, and all the work stuff, yeah, I, I put on some pretty long days, as, you know, most writers do. So I, I free time is... You know, hopefully a luxury I'll have down the road a little bit or something. No, I hear you. So, you know, growing up and being with your dad and being around that and... Um, Who's grown up? Yeah, you know, moving Who's on up? up, exactly. I haven't grown up moving yet. Moving on up. I'm, I write about um, dinosaurs, come on. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, who were your mentors really growing up? Um, besides, I'm sure your father was a mentor to you. But well, really, I mean, who did you I, look I, up to? I read a lot. You know, uh-huh. as a child, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, things of that nature. Um, as an author, I, I when I was in, I guess, high school going forward, I read a lot of Terry Brooks' work. Did you? Know, you? Sort of Shannara series, yes. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I at least maybe everything I, that he's ever written, to be honest. And I'm a big admirer of Terry Brooks, and I admire his writing style. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I emulate it per se. You know, we each develops his own style, but I've always appreciated his ability to create a fantastic visual in the mind of the reader you know, as you're progressing through the story. His attention to detail, uh, he really does a great job with that. Whereas, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I don't want to, I just find that if I have any complaint with some modern fiction, I think there's a lot of less is more type of work going out there where some writers try to do the, give you the minimum to get the point across. And sometimes they leave too much to the imagination of the reader. You know, a difference between saying, say, um, like one of my characters, uh, Jake walked from the boat to the dock versus, uh, you know, Jake's work boots thudded along the worn deck boards, you know, as he, something like that. You know, there's a, sometimes there's a tendency, it's almost like you're getting a Cliff Notes version of a story, and I'm not a big fan of that. And Terry Brooks doesn't do that, and a lot of writers I, I admire don't, where they really work hard to create the visual for the reader. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, one, and I've said this, you know, in a, in a past interview, Readers, when they're when they're reading your novel, they're entrusting you with the most precious gift they have, which is or one of them, which is their imagination. And I think mm-hmm. we owe it to ourselves to give them 
the greatest possible experience. You know, I, I want people to, when they read scenes from my book, I want them to be lifted up and taken and feel like they're in the scene, like they're, they're looking through a crystal clear window and they can see everything that's going on in that scene to the point that they're scared that that scene's going to crash through the window and end up in their lap. You know, and in some of my scenes, totally that's not something that. you really want. Yeah. And, it, you know, when, when you, so, you know, writers like, like Terry Brooks are, are people that I've always looked up to with the ability to create that type of experience for the reader. And, of course, that's what I, as a writer, strive to do whenever I write a scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, as I was growing up, my big dream was I wanted to be an astronomer. Believe it or not, I totally dig space and really like, um, you know, the planets and the stars and I was always at the planetariums, and I actually went to space camp one year, and my mom used to take me, um, when I was really young, to the planetariums all the time. And I used Mm -hmm. to go, and I just got really interested in stars. And after a few experiences I had with um, planets and stars and personal experiences of different things, I just decided that that's what I wanted to do, but... You know, it's like you go into school and you say that's what you want to do. And science was one of the things that I excelled at, but I really sucked at math. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really be an astronomer and calculate how far away stars are and billions and this and that and all that without the math skills. Um, but, you know, for but me... But you can still have a passion for it and it can oh, still be a terrific hobby that you are can you excel kidding? at. I'm such yeah, a I mean, stargazer. I mean, I'm just like, you know really interested in what NASA is doing and this and that. So your your whole thing on bringing about this creature that actually, um, if you read the book, guys, you'll see you fall in love with the creature towards the end of the book and you really see where it's going and there's room for growth on this book and I can definitely see it going into a major motion, motion picture. And, um, oh, you know, that... Reminds me, I want to ask you if you, mm-hmm. well, let's not say if, let's say when, because I'm mm-hmm. not going to say if, because then I'm saying may or may not. Right. Who would you like to see cast as the, um, if you were to think of any celebrity that you would like to be cast as Jack um, or Jake, Jake, excuse me, Jake, Jake, who would you want, who would you want to be cast as Jake? Well, you know, they say when you're writing a uh, the screen a screenplay, uh-huh. you you don't want to target a specific actor because you kind of can paint yourself into a corner. That's, uh, that good, type of that's thing. a good analogy. Yeah, because then you might limit yourself. You certainly certainly want to write a role exclusively for somebody. Um, you know, some of the actors like Jake is a relatively young guy. He's uh, I think. Uh, 28 years old or 26, something like that, I think 28, uh, in, in the novel. But, uh, you know, some of the actors that when I first wrote the book, you know, are obviously too old to play the part now. Um, I mean, somebody like Chris Helmsley, if I'm pronouncing it right, you know, Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think he would be a great Jake Braddock because he has the look and the physique, but at the same time, he has the... Uh, the way, the ability to emote, you know, Jake is a, a sort of like sorrowful character with a very tragic past that he carries around on his shoulders, whether he talks about it or not, and it affects him. Mm-hmm. And he's a very lovelorn character whose life is 
as, as popular as he may be with the people in his town, is really miserable. He's alone. He has nobody. He has no wife. He has no children. All he has is his job because after his wife drowned, he's thrown all that away. So uh, I, I've been impressed with Chris Helmsley's uh, ability uh, in terms of uh, carrying out you know, those type of emotions to to kind of portray that type of sorrowful character. And I think that somebody like him, you know, just as one example, would be an ideal candidate to, to portray Drake on the screen. Yeah, totally. I think I think that that is um, very true. You know, we do have a call coming in from 941. Is that an area code that you recognize? Mm, can't say that I do. Let's see who it is. Hold on a minute. 941, you're on the air. Who's this? This is Scott Martis. I'm a friend of Max's. Hi, Scott. Hi. You're from where? Um, I, I live in uh, Bradenton, Florida. I'm a cryptozoology researcher, mostly associated with uh, the Lake Champlain monster. Oh, cool. So how did you know um, about our show today and Max's uh, book that he's write, written? Oh, I was asked... Um, a while back to write a review, book review for Max's book, and uh, publishers <clears throat> provided me with a copy, and I enjoyed it very much. And I've also helped Max a little bit in the background with uh, absolutely Scott. Research. Mm-hmm. There you go, Max. Is Scott cool? <laughs> Scott, uh, of course he is. What's going on, Scott? Yeah, good. Hello, Scott. Scott. Hello? Okay. Uh, Scott, are you there? Max is on the phone with yes. us, too. You want to talk to Max? Um, Scott, what's going on, brother? Good to talk to you. Just uh, calling to shout out and say hi, and um, sounds like a great interview. Why, thank you, sir. Yeah, actually, uh, Scott uh, Holly, he actually did, I think, one of the very first uh, reviews and interviews for Cronus Rising uh, back oh, awesome. on a site called Cryptomundo, and he's been a, a godsend. He actually did, a, when I did an editorial a few months back about a, uh, an attack on a whale, he actually did some great research uh, for that, checking out bite marks on sperm whales, compare them to what had happened to this whale, and, you know, prehistoric, uh, you know, remains, you know, bites of prehistoric predators. A great guy. Scott, where do you work? Uh, I'm not working right now, but... Uh this past summer, I was on an expedition looking for the Lake Champlain monster in uh, Oh, really? Vermont. Wow. Yes. yes. Yeah, he did a. He was on Monster Quest a couple of years back with that. You're kidding. And they did a. Uh, yeah, they did a uh, a hunt for champ on Lake Champlain recently as well. Unfortunately, I was unable to attend, but hopefully next year we'll take a stab uh-huh. at it. Yeah. What is that well, like, Scott? I'll let you get back to your interview. I just called to say hi. And, Scott, uh, I'm so glad you called in. Max You're Clark. a very interesting man. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for calling in. I know Max really appreciates knowing that people are listening. And for anyone listening Absolutely. again. Absolutely. I'm in this corner. Yeah. We're um, on live with Max Hawthorne with Cronus Rising. If you'd like to call in, we're on for a little bit more, 347-677-1036. Have a really beautiful weekend, Scott. Yes, you too. Thank you. You're very welcome. Would you like me to mute you so you can listen to the rest of the interview, or would you like me to disconnect the call? Oh, that's fine. I can I can listen to it. I'm listening to it on the radio. So. Okay, cool. Have a good weekend, right. and thank you Take for care, helping Max. Max. Thank Later, you. brother. Yeah. Bye-bye. 
That was nice, Matt. Oh yeah. Having the, um, him call in. There's a lot yeah. of my Facebook regulars that I've become friends with. I guess you'd say through social media, uh, dozens of them to be to be you know frank, and uh, mm-hmm. they're they're great. I mean, there's some great people out there, by and large. You know, the occasional lunatic, but uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to hear from one of my people. Yeah, no. Tell me about this hunt that he went on on Lake Plus, um, Lake Champlain. Well, I, I mean, that. I don't want to get into divulging details because I don't know if they've published their findings yet of what happened on the last expedition. Um, but a few years back, when uh, Scott was on the, the show Monster Quest, uh, they had uh-huh. gotten some sonar readings uh, on Lake Champlain that they felt uh, seemed to match one similar to those given off by killer whales and possibly beluga whales, and they were, uh, there was some, you know, I guess, uh, interest in the fact of whether or not the creature, if there is a creature on Lake Champlain, might have been some cetacean, you know, a, pr- a primitive whale that was imprisoned there in the lake and has, of course, bred and multiplied and survived to the present. So the recent expedition was to go and try and confirm whether or not you know, they could find any more additional evidence in relation to these sonar signatures, the echolocation, it's called. Uh, when a certain cetaceans use sonar, they call it echolocation to try and find uh, food items to navigate through the dark. You know, sperm whales use echolocation when they go diving deep for giant squid, etc. So when you were getting, they were getting signatures like that, it seemed to be an indication of a possible cetacean presence on Lake Champlain. Um, I, you know, was, we discussed me going along with the possibility of actually bringing some big game fishing tackle and trying to bait this thing, you know, to the surface and try and catch it on rod and reel. <laughs> yeah, of course, I can imagine. Well, some of the reports indicate this thing might be 40 feet long, and of course that might be a, a fool's venture if it's, you know, if the creature was real at best. But I was, certainly wouldn't pass up on the opportunity. So. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, that could be very interesting. Um, I don't know anything about the show that he was on. What's it called? Monster Hunt? Monster Quest. Yeah, Monster Monster Quest. Quest. It was a series. I think it might have been, I don't know if it was on the History Channel or not. I mean, you know, at my age, the memory starts to go. But uh, it was a great series they used to have where they investigated different... Uh, it was on for several years, uh, different extremely large, rare, or possibly uh, unknown uh, creatures. They once uh, they went down and they got a footage, some still photos. They uh, put a camera on a, like a six-foot-long squid, a Humboldt squid, and they dropped it down like a 1,000 feet into the dark, and it was attacked by a squid that, at the time, they estimated was at least 60 feet long. So really? they, you know, yeah, they they've done they did shows back then looking for uh, the megalodon shark. They did shows looking for Sasquatch. Shows looking for giant octopus. You know, all sorts of stuff. It was a, it was an entertaining series in its day. Wow, that's I I I've never I've never experienced that. I've always watched the other stuff, and I've seen some specials. Um, what what do you watch on um on on TV, like as far as like those type of shows, are you into the fishing shows or? I don't have, other... have time to watch fishing shows anymore because, and to be uh-huh. honest, I don't I don't do it as much because I get depressed because I'm not out there as much as I'd like to be. Um, so any shows that I watch, there's a few series that I follow, and that's strictly mm-hmm. stuff that's on the DVR, obviously when opportunity presents itself. But uh, I mean, I'm, I watch Game of Thrones, I watch Ray Donovan. Yeah. Hmm? 
You like Game of Thrones? I, uh, yeah. Well, you know, when you've read as many Terry Brooks novels as I have, you know, you can't can't help that. Um, what else? Ray Donovan, Boardwalk Empire. You know, I used to watch True Blood. Obviously, the the season and the series. Oh my ended. God! Are you kidding? I watched it yeah. for seven years. <laughs> for how many ever years it was on from the first season. Mm-hmm. And I was so bummed out when it ended. And um, we're actually going to have a few of the cast members on the show. So you can keep looking out for that. Um, I've done a few promos with them and um, Comic-Con, seen them and stuff like that. And I really liked that show. I thought this last season was really different. And, you know, a lot of people really said they hated the ending. I really liked the ending because... It was like it was it was happy. It wasn't like, you know, an ending where it was like everybody got killed off, like everybody thought, mm-hmm. you know. I, I really liked the ending how we didn't really get to see who it was that um Suki was with, you know. Um you can just yeah, imagine, you know. It, yeah, it, well he wasn't because it really wasn't necessary because it's not a developed character. But yeah, I, I applauded the ending to be perfectly honest. So did I. I thought yeah, the fact that, that Bill was willing to sacrifice himself yeah you know for for Sookie's greater good you can't get yeah. you know much more love out of somebody than that and mm-hmm. you know the i mean obviously it's you're sad or melancholy that the you know this the series has ended as you're watching it you can't help yeah. but be overcome with emotions like that but at the same time i thought they did a masterful job of tying up all the loose ends and putting everything together and showing that the survivors and keep in mind they are survivors in the ultimate sense of the word but that they managed to move on to a better place and resolve you know they they, they all arced properly i guess you'd say even even the jason i think his name is yeah i know and you know what's really funny is um bill is british jason's australian and they both talk with these Louisiana um, accent. Bayou accent. So it's great. And, it, it's and then you hear great. them talking in a real interview, and you're like, whoa. Yeah, it's like the first time you ever I ever saw Russell Crowe in an interview. I'm like, wait a minute. You know, he doesn't sound like that. But no, it's, it's great. And, but that's the mark of a great um, actor. You can do accents like that. I know, I know. So now, um, how soon do you think that you're – have you started writing your second book already? Oh, yeah. It's it's – like in the mapped out kind of stage, like I do these things in grids, like I said, and everything. But uh, it's probably going to take, uh, I don't know, it'll be a few more months after the screenplay is done before that bad boy is ready to rock and roll. You know, it's a big book. You know, I mean, I write a lot faster than I, I did, though, when I first started. You know, when I first did Cronus, it, was, it took me nine months. You know, it was a huge book. But back then, of course, I was also juggling a full-time job and, you know, I'd be in my office, and when my boss wasn't looking, I'd be sneaking in writing or editing, you know, that type of stuff. Now it's a full-time gig for me, so I'm a lot more productive. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do to promote some of this stuff when you get to the point of getting ready to promote everything like you're doing now with the art and stuff? Are you going to do a big um, uh, drop on this? Well, that's not entirely up to me, and I don't know who you know I'll be having as a rep at the time. I mean, at that time, because things mm-hmm. may be in flux coming up and everything. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would you know from past experience build up obviously as much presence as possible through social media and, and you know do pre-interviews, you know 
you know, pre-release type stuff. You know, you just, it's just a matter of people knowing who you are and, you know, that your book's there. I mean, I guarantee you everybody that has, you know, read Cronus Rising now, you know, you can count on will be buying the next book and so forth and so on. I mean, they, they're, you know, what was it that one guy said to me? One of, one of my regulars, great guy, I can't think of his name right now, which I, maybe I wouldn't even mention it, but, but uh, he had asked me on Facebook if a, you know, book two was available, and I told him, no, it wasn't going to be until like late next summer, and then he said to me, great, no Walking Dead, no book two, wonderful, something like that, and that was one of the most flattering things that I could hear from somebody that, you know, to be compared with a TV show like The Walking Dead, which is like the biggest hit on television these days, you know, that somebody could equate my book in their head on a level with that where they had, you know, it was of that much value to them, you know, in their entertainment life. You know, it was very flattering to hear something like that. Yeah, you know, I can only imagine, you know, when you hear stuff like that from other people. I I think that, I think that, the the book is really a great read for anyone that really wants something that they can sit down and read and really get into and and relate to the characters and there's a lot of depth in this book there's a lot of research and i can see that you put a lot of your own personal research and personal knowledge into the book as well well something that people have mentioned repeatedly that they really liked about the book in reviews and I'm talking even professional editorial reviews is mm-hmm. that they they everybody liked the fact that everyone had a great backstory and you know it was a unique and a strong and unique character um, even though some of them came close to being quote archetypes they were so developed that they just weren't but most what they always harp on too which is very flag for me is that I was able to give the creature depth as well it sort of had a backstory of its own, and it was a sort of sentient creature that wasn't just some mindless eating machine that's like, eat you, eat you, attack, eat, eat, that, that, that. You know, it's not like this relentless thing that's constantly just coming after you, like, you know, a mindless robot with teeth on the end of it. The creature actually has a sort of personality of its own, but it's done in such a primeval way that it almost feels like you're stepping inside the monster and seeing things from an alien primeval perspective. It's, it's like you're actually inside the head of a living dinosaur. And to accomplish that and the people to appreciate mm-hmm. that I was able to pull that off, you know, that's also a great compliment for me. And you, know, I, you appreciate when people you know, appreciate what you do. Yeah, you know, I think that it really makes a difference if somebody writes something and that they have the knowledge. And it's really good to always write something that you have some personal experiences with because you can actually really um, paint a better picture, I think, for people. And um, that I see you doing a lot. I see you doing painting pictures really great with that. Well, I've had, Um, like I said, I've had a lot of experiences. I've never had, you know, a 100-ton pliosaur try and make a snack out of me. But uh I have been, I have been attacked by an alligator, for example, down in Florida. Oh no! Yeah, yes, actually, it was a. He made two runs at at us. My father and I. I took my dad to Florida for his 80th birthday, and we were there was like a a 12-acre lake 
behind the house, and we were fishing the shoreline there. You know, standing, your feet are like right by the edge of the water. And a guy had warned me. He said, be careful, there's a gator in there, so just be aware. And I was like, how big? He goes, oh, just seven feet. I'm like, oh, no problem, you know, whatever. I didn't think I'd see it. I looked around. I didn't see it. So we were fishing, and we were doing well catching these fish called tilapia. And all of a sudden, I see this big log, you know, coming towards me. Now, when you've, you know, grown up in Philadelphia and lived many of your years in Brooklyn, you know, all stories about the New York sewers and having gators in them notwithstanding, you know, you're not used to seeing an alligator coming at you on the water. And, you know, I'm just like kind of like, I'm like, oh, look, there's a log coming towards me. But when I saw the mouth open and the teeth, I was like, whoa. And I went, Dad, watch out for the gator. And I like sprang back about six feet, one leap. So my dad, he turns and the gator saw him move and it turned toward him. And he was trapped because there was, he was like in a corner where there was a big drain coming in there, which he couldn't get past. And the hill behind him was like at a 45-degree angle. And at his age and with his heart, there was no way he could get up that hill. So basically, he was cornered. So now you're in a position where, okay, i got to do something. And the gator, you know, it reached the edge of the, 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 uh, the water's edge, and it started to climb out and go after him. And I didn't have any weapons with me. You know, the only thing I had was the, the landing net which was maybe about five feet long, you know, the fishing landing net. And I grabbed it, and I smacked him over the head with it, right in the eyes, you know. Oh, and the wow. gator, he didn't, he didn't like that at all, cause he, and he sprang back in the world. It was a huge splash, dove, you know, and everything. I was like, like that. And then I was like, I was like, wow, that was interesting. And then I saw him pop up about 20 feet out. You mm-hmm. saw these two eyes, you know, and I heard this sound. It, it, and I'll never forget it. It went like this. It was like, like that wow. and I knew he was pissed and I took my my camera out of my pocket I turned it on I went dad I went get pictures of this I said this is going to be good and the gator came charging at me you know their tails what? they they wave from side to side to get repulsions he came at me like a missile and the only thing that stopped them from getting me by the leg was the fact that there was like a lip on the edge of this lake kind of with the grass he couldn't get fully out of the water on the initial charge. He got about halfway out. And as he did, I just jumped at him and I was like beating him over the head with this net. Bam, bam, bam. And he's snapping at me, trying to grab me and I'm hitting him. And my dad's taking pictures real calmly, standing there going, that's it. Take it to him, Max. Watch the teeth. You know, comments like this, you know, you're like, I don't need instructions right now. And after it was like hitting concrete, the net was a pretzel. By the time he finally got discouraged and went back into the water, you know, I was like, Uh, I was like, wow. And then he wouldn't leave. He just kept watching us and watching us. And every time we would hook a fish, he would steal it. He kept taking our fish. And then he tried to eat a neighbor's dog that came over. I mean, the, the thing was a huge pest. And they couldn't remove him from the lake because every time the fishing game would come down to get him, they told me, because I called them, they said, no, he knows what our engines sound like. They have these big trucks. And as soon as they would show up, he would hide, submerge somewhere in the deep water, and they could never find him. They could, they could never get him. So I don't know if he's still there. I mean, that was like two years ago. But anyway, yeah, so point being, I have been attacked by an alligator, so it's not the same scale as having a huge plyos who are trying to make a snack out of you, but it does give you an idea of what the cold fear feels like when a big reptile wants to have you for lunch. Yeah, no, you know, I saw a really scary video the other day where it was an elephant going by a pond, and the elephant's um, tusk was, or the, the, the trunk of them, 
Yeah, the so Nile crocodile. Yeah, grab the elephant's yeah. trunk. Yeah. Very Did he get away? Story. Nobody told us whether there, he got there's away been actually or two different versions of that. I, I actually posted one. Um, it was a female elephant with its calf, mm-hmm. and this yeah, is a pretty size of crocodile. You know, you look at the crocodile, and you don't realize that this crocodile was probably at least 16 or 17 feet long when you kind of measure it out. But what happened is the elephant, like the, I think the crocodile didn't realize how big its target was, you know, it saw the nose, you know, the end of the trunk and said, ooh, I'll grab this. Maybe it thought it was going after the baby. But the, the cow elephant, she pulled to pull away, and then she got very pissed off, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And she just waded into the water, and you see her head dip down, and you could tell she tried to impale the crocodile, like pin it, you know, to the bottom of the river or lake with her tusks, you know, stab right through it, et cetera. Wow. And the crocodile let go immediately and got out of dodge. So good thing it, for that. I mean, yeah, thank God for tusks. See that? It didn't hurt the poor elephant. Well, I'm sure that you know? her her trunk probably needed to be on the mend for a few days. But yeah, I think the uh, the crocodile probably got the worst of that encounter. What um. Uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't go after the calf, right? And only one. Well, it might have her. been. You know, it may have grabbed the wrong thing, or it maybe grabbed the, the closest piece. You know, maybe it thought that the elephant's trunk was a wildebeest's snout instead. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was a really ambitious crocodile. You know, I mean, they'll eat anything. Wow, that's that's so that's so sad. You know, when I saw that picture, I was just like, my heart mm. was just like sunk hoping that the elephant got away and the baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you know? Both the ones I've seen, the the elephant, it would take a ginormous, as the word is, likes to be used, crocodile to drag down, especially an adult elephant. I mean, you're talking about a, that's, a, that's a lot of meat and muscle. I rode an elephant one time, me and my crazy experiences, and being on the back of an elephant, it's like sitting on concrete with tire rubber on top of it, even their oh, hairs totally, yeah. are like steel bristles. Yeah. I mean, they're so huge. I've done huge. that. Have you done camels? Yeah. Have you been on a camel yet? When I was like five, but I don't remember yeah. much. <laughs> I did that in Morocco, and mm-hmm. um, I rode an I rode an elephant when I was in India, and then also in um, uh, part of um, Brazil, they have elephants mm-hmm. too, and that was really that was really trippy. But yeah, I can totally get that. And you know they are really loving animals. They really are. And um, even though some people say they're really angry and they get they get mean and stuff, they'll charge you and whatever. Well, it depends on the elephant. You know, it's like yeah. the killer whales in SeaWorld. You know, elephants in captivity in particular, or that have had bad experiences with people. You know, these are highly intelligent animals can become extremely dangerous. I mean, I mm-hmm. saw a special where they were documenting an elephant that they had to shoot in Africa that had developed a uh, very disturbing habit of killing people from one of the local villages. And they would describe how the elephant had a specific technique. I don't know if its mate was shot by poachers or what, but it was a very you know, angry, very large bull elephant. And it would grab a human being when it encountered them, and it would dash you on the ground, you know, like pick you up and like slap you, throw you at the ground. And that's like falling out of a three-story building right away from the speed you're going to be traveling. You're automatically going to be in bad shape. And then what the elephant would do, unfortunately, is it would 
impale the person with its tusks. It would stab through them into the ground repeatedly over and over again. And then the guy said, then it would start to step on them. It would start at their feet and work their way, work its way up. Uh, you know, you put a six or eight ton animal, you know, on its weight on one foot. It's a lot. And then it, the last thing it was doing is they said it would stand on your head until it was completely flat. So, you know, there are bad elephants out there, just like there are bad people. But typically speaking, I think it's, unless it's an aggressive male that's in, you know, muff, I believe it's pronounced in mating season or something, usually it's yeah. an elephant that's had a bad experience or is protecting itself. Yeah, you know what What um, they say about hippos? They say hippos are the most dangerous creatures um, around. That They, they kill, kill 2,500 people. people a year in Africa. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, 2,500. Because they, they're so territorial. They have these huge jaws and these gigantic mm-hmm. canines, and they will attack canoes and small boats and turn them over and bite. And if you get bitten by something with 14 or 18-inch canines wow. you know, that are like four or five inches thick, I mean, that's a mm-hmm. horror, horrific wound, you know, unless you have a really emergency care on the spot and it's not in a life-threatening area. You know, the survival rate of something like that is not going to be very high. They, they kill crocodiles. They've been known to bite large crocodiles in half. So a hippo is definitely, that is not something I would want to encounter in the water with all my adventures or misadventures. Yeah, you know, I, I, think, that, I think that we all need to be prepared. And if we're going to go out and we're going to be somewhere, we need to know that we're going to encounter maybe some things that may not be of the norm. Like for me, I know that... Um, I've talked to people like I know in the military, don't mm-hmm. they train and they go out and they drop them in the jungle and they basically have to live off the jungle for like a week and people are known to eat spiders and, and bugs and stuff like that? I mean, I've they heard stories like that? like that, but you know, having yeah. not done the military thing myself, you know, uh-huh. I, I, I try to cut down on my spider consumption lately. But uh, uh, I do understand <laughs> it is a, a good form of protein, et cetera, and everything. Uh-huh. I just... But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of areas where, you know, like if you go swimming in the water with sharks, yeah. for example, you oh, know, there gosh. are people that like to swim with great whites even without a cage. You know, you're kind of taking your life in your hands. You know, you, mm-hmm. you would not do that in front of a wild lion, for example. You know, yeah. so why would you put yourself in harm's way with a predator that weighs two tons you know, and has razor sharp teeth and is capable of biting a person in half. It just doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. And there are animals, creatures out there that eat great white sharks. You know, some we may not even know yet. So mm-hmm. yeah, when you, you have to choose your... Like those your, pictures your... you sent me. Now, getting back to your creature in mm-hmm. Clonus Rising, Yes. where did that come from? What, the pliosaur? A creature, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, pliosaurs are actually were possible, you know, most likely were, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but prehistoric marine predators, a species of plesiosaur that were around for a very long time through the Jurassic into the Cretaceous. And a pliosaur, if you wanted to describe it in layman's terms, would basically look like, let's say it had the head of a crocodile, but it would have a very short tail. And instead of four stubby legs, it would have four very large, powerful flippers. It would be able to swim like a seal at high speed. It would have an incredibly powerful bite filled with razor sharp jaws. And these creatures were quite large. I mean, they have, for example, uh, they have individual teeth in some of the museums of pliosaurs that measure 16 inches in length, teeth that they found. That give you an idea, Mm -hmm. a 10-meter 
Liplorodon, which is a species of pliosaur, has teeth only eight inches long. So basically, there are firm indications of 20 plus meter, that's about 65 feet, long prehistoric pliosaurs, you know, these marine creatures, marine reptiles that at one point dominated the Earth's oceans. So picture a reptile the size of a sperm whale with a gigantic head filled with 16 inch teeth. And it's a pretty scary critter to begin with. You know, so I didn't take as many artistic liberties with the monster and Cronus rising as people think. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's you have to do a lot of a lot of research on this and really know what you're talking about to really paint a picture of something. That's very interesting. Um, I find I find that the book really does paint a really realistic picture. And it's almost like where it could really, really happen in today's world. So I'm really excited about the second book and super excited about um, the third book and the possibility of you doing a screen, the screenplay that you're writing and, and getting it um, picked up and stuff like that. I, I really hope that that does happen because I think it would really help us and open our eyes up. I know a lot of us are looking forward to Jurassic Park um, coming out. And yes, I think me that of, all, use, of all people. Oh, God, are you kidding? I, that's like the best. Of course, I don't know if you saw the recent, uh, the findings just came out about the Spinosaurus that was in Jurassic Park no. 3. Yeah, it just, I just posted something about it yesterday, but they found uh, they never had much in terms of fossil material, some jaw, some skull stuff, etc. Uh-huh. It turns out apparently that Spinosaurus was not a theropod type animal. It didn't walk on its hind legs like a T-Rex. It actually was more like a four-legged, almost like a crocodile type animal that was primarily in the water with short legs, and it fed on large fish. So... As it turns out that the Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3 apparently is really, uh, you know, artistic liberties, but of course nobody knew that at the time. But the real Spinosaurus was more like, uh, they said it looked like a mixture between a crocodile and a duck, I think was kind of like really? the uh, insinuation. Yeah, not as impressive and all-powerful as, you know, the public was, you know, has believed, et cetera, but still an interesting creature. Would definitely not be a match for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, which would tower over it and, you know, have it for lunch, in my opinion. But, where you? Wow. That's going to have a whole new take on, um, on, uh, Jurassic Park 4? The movie when it comes out, yeah. I, oh my God, if it's I, in there, I don't know if it's in there or not, yeah. but if it is, that's going to be like, hmm. Wow. I'm I really excited to see that. I, I really want to see, I really, really, really want to see that. It's going to be, I think it's going to be really cool um, the, how they're going to bring that into play because I can see that that could be like a segue into another one, like when at the, the second um, second Avatar comes out. I can't wait for that either. Mm-hmm. Well, I really like it when you have, like the great thing about the Jurassic Park films uh-huh. is that it as it, they've always breathed such new life into the into the paleo you know the dinosaur genre and i mean obviously michael crichton was the, an, an amazing genius and the you know steven spielberg and, and and the people that you know work for him i mean they 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 do such great work in terms of just making the public be able to believe that these animals could still be, you know, like it makes it a part of your life and it lets you look at them in a, in a much better light than if you were just looking at dry bones, you know, fossils in a museum or something like that. 
very inspirational oh, for really? writers such as myself. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, I just wow. Yeah, the, and and the, you know they they always come up with great storylines as well in terms of you know arcing their characters and how the adventure goes and building up the crescendo towards the end, etc. You know, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan. So that's that's kind of cool. You know, I I think that um, we can look forward to a lot of really cool things coming out from you because I think you're very vast on a lot of your experiences and you've um, um, you know are still looking and doing new things and I really implore everyone make sure you go to um, chronosrising.com and it's k-r-o-n-o-s rising.com and make sure you check out Max Hawthorne's uh, website and um, check him out on Facebook as well and for everyone that's been listening in the chat room, I want to thank all of you. And if you missed the beginning of the show, the show will be available on Red Velvet Media and also on iTunes On Demand. Um, I'm not going to be doing a show next Wednesday, but I will be doing a show next Friday with um, Ivor Davis. You're going to really like this show. This is a guy who um, was asked to go on tour with the Beatles, was the very first person to ask to go on tour with the Beatles, when they first came to America, the first two tours, and he also uh, was around for the Patty Hearst thing, um, the Bobby Kennedy Association, uh, Association assassination, and um, also around for um, the Charles Manson murders, and was one of the per- first people oh to write God. about that. Yeah, so he's gonna he's an interesting person, and the show's supposed to be about the Beatles, but I can only imagine that we're gonna get into everything else, and that's gonna be next Friday, and I'll be posting that up, and we're gonna also have Richie Scarlett on pretty soon, and um, hopefully some other really surprise guests. So I want to thank you so much for being here today, Max, and I know that um, time is uh, of the essence for you. Um, and we are going to be closing the show with a song. I was trying to find some really cool music to play for um, Max's show. And the first song that we played was from a National Geographic show about creatures that they're discovering. And I'm going to end the show today with a song called um, one, of, one, of, one of my favorite Robert Plant songs. And I think everyone will really like it because it talks about um, being on a boat and life on a boat and um, being at sea and stuff like that. Um, Max, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can do it either through the website or just uh-huh. contacting me through social media on Facebook. Yeah, I get emails and messages from people constantly there, and I'm always happy to talk to the fans. Yeah, and I'm going to be having you back again. We're going to be talking more about some of the stuff that you've asked to be um, a participant in, and we want to talk a little bit more in depth about some of the ongoing investigations and some of the things that you are part of, and so we can get a little better in-depth view of that. And then as you come closer to publishing the other books and the the screenplay, we definitely want to have you back too, and I want to thank you so much for being here today. I know that um, you're such a good guy, and um, these this book is really fun, guys. Pick it up and read it. Holly, what, it is what? my privilege to be here. I always <laughs> enjoy being on your show, always enjoy talking to you. Yeah. You're a, a classy lady start to finish, no doubt mm-hmm. about it. And anything I can do, um, you know, I'll definitely tune in on for your show next Friday and check it out. 
You're so awesome. Oh, next Friday's going to be a blast. You're going to love him. He's such an interesting man. He actually interviews himself. If you go to his website, he interviews himself. Um, he asks himself questions, and then he go, changes his clothes, and he asks himself questions like, really? what would like to be with the Beatles? Oh, yeah, he's a character. British, he's super funny. I mean, you'll you'll love his interview. It's going to be really fun. So make sure to tune in next Friday, guys. I will not be on the air next Wednesday. But um, Friday, make sure to tune in. And today's show, again, if you missed it, it will be on iTunes and also on demand immediately afterwards. And I want to thank you so much. Do you want to say anything to your fans, Max? Well, I like, would love to give a shout-out to all my Facebook people, oh, yeah. Kenny Sills and all the rest of the guys out there. It is an honor and a privilege. I am happy to have you guys as readers, and I live to serve. You're so awesome. Yeah, I think that... I think that um, this is a really good read. If you ever want to read something and you just want to get lost in it and go get, get into a world where you can just, like, get away from what's going on around you, pick up this book. Again, Cronus Rising, and it is available on online and um, on the website. And if you'd like to, like I said, go to Facebook and check out um, Cronus Rising on there. And um, you just type it into the website um, onto the Google Type in K-R-O-N-O-S, Rising, the book, and um, it's there. So everyone, have a great weekend. I know it's Friday. Don't drink and drive. And um, be blessed, everyone, and appreciate what you have around you because, um, you know, I know our world is in very chaotic times right now, but we just have to hold on to what our our um, gut spirituality tells us to and uh, live it, right? Live the dream. So there That's you go. Right. Have a great weekend, guys, and enjoy this song. I think this is such a great song. You'll like it. Thank you so much, Holly. You're so welcome. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
Thank you.